Well, good morning again. Welcome to Missio. My name is Bernie. I'm one of the elders here. It's a, uh, it's a privilege to be um, able to open God's Word again with you. It seems like it's been some time since I've been able to do this, but um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the close of that chapter, verses 53 through 72. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a, a, pew, a, a Bible in the pew rack somewhere in front of you. I believe you can find our text beginning on page 851 um, of, uh, of that Bible. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. And as you get that, uh, just leave your uh, finger there. Before we uh, spend some time in this passage, um, I want to take some time to... Um, to focus in prayer on a prayer partner this week, uh, our prayer focus. And um, our prayer focus this week is for 20 schemes, ministry in Scotland to the housing schemes, uh, think housing projects or government um, subsidized housing. Um, and I, I was privileged to spend uh, the last week, uh, I got back last Sunday, I spent about eight days in Scotland, um, up in Merkinch, which is a scheme uh, just outside of the city of Inverness. Uh, and I did not find Nessie when I was there, disappointingly. Um, but Inverness is, is one of the wealthiest cities in the UK. Uh, it's also the fastest, city, uh, fastest growing city in all of Europe. A lot of money is coming there. And despite that, Merkinch in South Keswick uh, is, a, is a housing scheme um, that uh, is developed and is the poorest in Scotland and the poorest in the UK. Um, they have um, tremendous uh, levels of, of mental health issues that they deal with there. Um, it is the bottom 1% of poverty. Uh, and hopelessness runs rampant in this community. There's, there's about 6,000 people that live in this little scheme of, of Merkinch in South Keswick. Um, more tragic than any of those figures, though, is that uh, at present there is not established a, a congregation, a church, which uh, preaches and teaches and stands on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I had the privilege of spending a week with um, Chris and Catherine Davidson, who have been there for the last year, um, developing relationships, uh, leading a small group of about eight people, um, envisioning them what it would look like um, to reach every man, woman, and child in that scheme, all 6,000 people in that scheme with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, they are laboring to that end in very... Uh, in very tough circumstances. Um, beyond that, they're looking beyond even now with eight people, their own scheme. They've already identified another scheme that they would like to plant into once their congregation is established. And their hope is, is that Mayor Kinch can be um, a sending center for the entire Highlands um, to plant and revitalize other congregations. So it was a joy to be with a, brave, a faithful brother and sister as they labored there. Um, we spent time doing ministry with kids and families and um, presented the gospel to many people who had never heard uh, of Jesus, knew nothing of the gospel. Uh, so praise God, his word went out. Uh, it was heard. 
um, and they developed uh, new relationships in the community, which they had yet to establish. So it was a, a tremendous week. It was an encouragement to me. It was a challenge as I think about um, even coming back to um, our own uh, city here. So we want to just spend a few moments and, um, and pray, asking God to uh, strengthen Chris and Catherine, uh, the McKinch Free Church as it's established there, uh, that God would work and move in and through them. So if you would, uh, bow your heads with me. Father, we do thank you for your grace in our lives that, that you encountered us, you confronted us with your words of grace in Christ Jesus. Um, and Father, we, uh, we don't take that for granted. So often we do, but uh, right now we want to ask you that you would uh, give that same opportunity to men, women, and children in Merkinch and South Keswick. We pray that you would use Chris and Catherine Davidson um, and the other members of the launch team of Merkinch Free Church. Um, we ask that you would give them um, uh, growing relationships with people in the community, that you would give them favor um, in the eyes of people in the community, um, that they would be able to develop relationships, conversations to make way for your son uh, and his victory to be proclaimed. We ask that you would give them strength so that they would not grow weary in doing what is right and good. There are so many opportunities for them to be discouraged and um, disheartened and just frustrated by what they see going on in their housing project, in this scheme. We ask that you would um, fix their eyes on your son Jesus and on his uh, plan for that community. We know that um, you have people there that you have yet to call. And so, uh, Father, we pray that you would send your spirit and that you would give life to some, that you would, um, that you would make disciples, that you would give new hearts, um, that your glory, that your praise, that your honor might be known uh, in Merkinch, in South Keswick, in Inverness, throughout all the highlands, through Scotland and the UK. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, now, look now at Mark chapter 14, uh, beginning with verse 53. This is God's word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. 
Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants' girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Would you again just bow your heads with me? Father, we ask now that by your spirit, through your word, you would work in our hearts and minds, reveal Jesus to us. Bring forth fruit for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The things you do when no one's looking define you. You are who you are when no one's looking. Or so the saying goes. Um, most of us have likely heard that saying, and, and perhaps I, I think it's, it's partially true, um, but my experience tells me that that's probably incomplete at best. I think we do well to add something like, the things you do when faced with pressure define you. Or you are who you are when faced with the pressures of life. For example, uh, I'm a really patient person in my study with a theological book in this hand and a cup of coffee in this hand. Cool as a cucumber. That's me, right? Now, you change the circumstances just a little and, and things may begin to look a wee bit different, right? Um, my wife was at the hospital with my daughter, Faith, for several days this week. And I was tasked with the responsibilities of feeding, clothing, bathing, all my other kids. Um, Guess what? The character that I exuded when I had the theological book and cup of coffee in my hand was really called into question in those moments. Now, that stressful situation for me didn't force my hand into, into making me something that I wasn't. That, that situation, the pressures of that situation simply, you know, pulled back the curtain 
and showed who I am, right? You are who you are when faced with the pressures of life. And in this passage, Mark reports uh, the, the trial of Jesus and a testing of Peter and shows their responses to being put in a, in a pressure cooker of sorts. And their responses revealed who they were. And in revealing that, uh, Mark is hoping to encourage us should we choose to listen. So let's take a look. In this passage, we, we saw last week that, that Jesus was arrested. So Jesus is under arrest and he's led to the, high, the house of the high priest um, where a, a group of, of men, a ruling council called the Sanhedrin, think 71 old robed guys sitting in a room. That's what the Sanhedrin is. And they are all gathered together um, for a little trial they have prepared for Jesus, whom they have arrested. And let it be clear, they've already reached their verdict. They're just ready to have the trial now. Uh, they've even purchased witnesses in, uh, for the occasion. Though, despite you know, trying to bring everything together, the witnesses couldn't keep their story straight, right? That's what we see at the outset of the passage. Look at verses 56 through 59 with me. It says this, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They're, they already have the verdict, death. They're just now looking for something to substantiate it. Uh, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, the temple in Jerusalem, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. So, like, they, they have the verdict, death in mind, but the, the thing's falling apart before them. The, the, the case is disintegrating in their hands before them. And so the chief priest wants to get right to it. Since it's not going well, in verse 61, he asks a very pointed question. Look at verse 61 with me. He said, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ? That word Christ is the, is the word you might have heard in the Bible, Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of God's people, the, come, the one who would come and set God's people free from their, their enemies, their oppressors. Are you the Christ? And they says, the son of the blessed. Now, blessed is just another way of saying God. The Jews were... Uh, were loath to say the name of God for fear of, of taking God's name in vain, so they just avoided it. They would use other um, circumlocutions, other ways of saying it. So, the blessed God. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Son of God? Jesus answers, I am. But he doesn't want to leave it at that. He kind of puts it in, in bold letters. He puts exclamation points at the end. He highlights it in yellow by, by adding these words. Look at it with me in verse 62. Jesus said, I am. I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Jesus is doubling down here. What he's doing is he's taking real, two really important, really famous passages from the Old Testament and applying them to himself. They were passages that uh, God's people were, um, they kind of always went to. They were their favorites because they talked about God's victory for his people. Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel 7 verse 13. Psalm 110 is a declaration of a king who would sit on a throne with Almighty God. Almost unthinkable, but that's what the psalm declares about a coming king who would sit on the throne with God. That's what, that's what Jesus said, seated at the right hand of power. Again, another way of saying God without saying God. And then Daniel 7 describes the son of man, one associated with God who receives universal authority from God and then comes and judges everything, everyone, coming with the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus says, I am the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God, the appointed king, and the judge and ruler of all things. That's what Jesus has just declared in this trial. And, and the chief priests love it, he's got it. They're, they're, the witnesses couldn't do it, but Jesus himself offers up the evidence. Now, the funny thing is, or the interesting thing is, to this point in the Gospel of Mark, if you recall, Jesus has kind of been attempting to keep a low profile, right? Um, he hasn't donned a mask and, and hidden away or anything, but he's reacted really strongly when others have identified him as the Christ, as the Son of God, as, as, uh, as the Messiah. He, he shuts them down as soon as they recognize it, as soon as they say it, as soon as they verbalize it. He seems strangely protective of his identity all the way throughout the gospel. In chapter one, he heals a leper. He says, shh, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone he healed you. In chapter three, he casts out some demons. The demons say, you are the son of God. He says, don't make me known. Nobody's to know that right now. In chapter eight, what does Peter do? Peter confesses Jesus is the, the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer. What does Jesus do? He says, don't tell a soul. Right, so he's been strangely protective of his identity. But in spite of this secrecy, here, in, in Mark 14, in this most really inopportune uh, of times, when his life is literally on the line, I mean, his life is in the balance. Jesus boldly and defiantly declares that I am the Christ, the Son of God, the coming King who will judge and rule all things. So why do that here? Why not do that when you have adoring fans around you out of, outside of the city in some field? Why, why announce yourself so publicly here when, when these guys are just biting at the bit to put you away, to end your life, to snuff you out? Well, because all the other times people had rightly labeled Jesus were really just opportunities for them to actually miss his identity, although they've rightly labeled him. 
They, they wanted to interpret his reign or his miracles or his power in earthly terms, right? That he would be the one that would right political wrongs. He would be the one that would cure social ills. He would bring in an earthly utopia, right? That's what he was guarding against. But clearly and forcefully announcing his identity here, it seals his destiny. He would be executed from this point. There, there really wasn't any hope. And in fact, that's the point. That's what Jesus was going for in, in doubling down on, on publicly witnessing to his identity. It ensured his suffering and his death for his people. It was a surrender in this moment to his purpose for, for coming from the throne room of heaven and becoming a man and taking his place on earth. And, and Mark is eager to show us this. He, he sets this faithful confession of himself as, as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the ruling judge. And he says all these things by how he tells the story. All these things must be understood in the light of the fact that Jesus is the suffering servant. Yes, he's the Christ, the Son of God, the ruling, uh, ruling king, the coming judge, but Jesus is the suffering servant, the, the one sent to ransom his people by giving his life as a payment. See, he came to, to suffer as a substitute in the place of guilty sinners. And unless people recognized that, they didn't really get anything else about him. Some of us might know Jesus as a great teacher, as a, a miraculous healer, as, as one with, with, with teachings and a movement that would just transform society. But unless we know him as the one who came to, to deal with our sinful hearts, you don't know Jesus. Because that is why Jesus came. I, I want us to back up and see this idea of the suffering servant in this passage. Again, the high priest is just frustrated by the, the incompetency of the witnesses that they've, they've gathered together. They can't seem to agree. So in verse 60, after this bumbling testimony from all these witnesses, the high priest, verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And look what Mark's report, verse 61. But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Why is that significant? Because in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, there was a man talked about, one who would come, the suffering servant. And in the, 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 towards the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, Isaiah says this about the suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Mark wants us to see Jesus' identity as the suffering servant in his refusal to speak in his defense. But there's, there's further, there's more. Jesus' connection with the suffering servant is further reinforced by what happened after they condemned him to death. Look at it with me. Verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving, deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This horror here recalls the mistreatment of the servant in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says this, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull, my beard, pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This king, this Messiah, this son of God, this, this, this ruling judge would win victory and secure deliverance for his people, but it would be by his suffering. It would be through his death. He had to suffer for their sin. He had to die for their wrongdoing. Somebody did because they were deserving of death. He had to humble himself to endure God's wrath for his own people's rebellion. And that's why Jesus faithfully confessed his identity at such an inopportune moment. That's why it's the first time he declares his identity. So what is the way Jesus responds to this pressure in this trial? What does that tell us about him? They show him to be a trustworthy savior, right? We can and should trust ourselves to the one who faithfully witnessed at the cost of his own life to save his people. He didn't didn't open his mouth to defend himself, to protect his own life, to save his own hide. No, he faithfully witnessed to his own identity that he might be sacrificed for you and I who would trust in him. So I wonder, have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, for eternal life, for acceptance with God. Not for changing your social situation, your economic situation, the political uh, landscape, the social climate. Not for, have you trusted in Jesus for your acceptance with God? Because that's why he came. So while Jesus has, has been on trial and he's faithfully witnessing to his own identity, Peter is facing a a different trial of sorts in a different courtroom here, the the courtroom of public opinion. He's facing his own pressures. He's approached, as we see in verse 66, by a a servant of this high priest who's doing the interrogating inside. And the servant is a young girl, not really a a very threatening uh, figure in this story. And she immediately identifies Jesus as one of the followers of Jesus. Verse 68 details his response. Look at it with me. But he denied it, saying, I neither know 
nor understand what you mean. So he, then he quickly moves away from the fire. Everybody's gathered around the fire. It's a cold night. So he figures, hey, I'm going to get away. He goes to some other location, hoping to just be alone. But the girl doesn't let it go. She's hanging on to it. Peter couldn't shake the girl. She comments to her around her, that guy, he's one of those with Jesus. Verse 70, look at his response. But again... He denied it. And this time, the people in the courtyard, they couldn't shake the feeling that, in fact, Peter was one of Jesus. They heard his accent. They knew he was a Galilean, right? It's like if somebody from West Virginia rolls in here, we know something's a little off, right? They're not from the Q's. It's the way it would have been for a Galilean in Jerusalem. Everybody would have known, this guy's not from around here. Right? They know he's a Galilean. Look at Peter's final reply in verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. See, this wasn't, this wasn't a, a vanilla denial. I don't know him. This was the harshest, ugliest uh, denial, denial in the harshest, ugliest terms that, that could be described. Cursing, swearing, uh, saying like, you know, let me die if I know this man. I don't know him. He completely swears off Jesus. And then the rooster crows. And Peter remembers Jesus' words that he would deny him three times. Despite Peter's dismissal of that, despite Peter's assurance that he would never deny Jesus, he remembers, says the rooster crows, Jesus' words that he would deny him three times. And he weeps. He weeps. What is Peter's response to the pressure um, to this trial, to these circumstances, tell us about him. He's a failure. He's a failure. And what Mark wants us to see is the contrast between Jesus and Peter. Jesus faithfully witnessed to his own identity at the cost of his own life. Peter faithlessly denies Jesus in order to save his own life. See, not only does Mark intend us to persuade us about Jesus, the Son of God who came to suffer in order to save his people, not only is Mark intended to persuade us to trust in Jesus, Mark is written to, to Jesus' followers in the Christian community to teach us about discipleship or what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to identify with him, to call ourselves by his name. And I think what Mark wants us to understand from this passage is that discipleship involves so much more than, than a proper confession about Jesus. It involves publicly witnessing to and identifying with Christ even in the face of pressure. 
If you recall, we read just a few chapters ago, Peter's great confession, Jesus, you are the Christ. He got it right. And then he spent every waking moment with Jesus. And yet, here he is, denying Jesus. When pressured, his true self is revealed. He denies Jesus. Some of us cling to an admiration of Jesus. Oh, we think the world of Jesus. Isn't he great? Some of us, like Peter in this passage, we cling to a discipleship of safe observation, just a distance from Jesus. We can see him. We can hear him. All the while, Christ is calling us to deny ourselves by publicly embracing his person and work. See, disciples put away self-preservation. They put away safe observation in favor of publicly embracing Jesus for all that he is and all that he's done. And if we're thoughtful and, and just really kind of honest about our lives, denial rather than discipleship may characterize our lives uh, more truly. You might say, I've never responded to to Jesus the way Peter did here. I've never said I don't know him, saying I'm not a follower. That's really just to minimize what it means to deny Jesus. See, sometimes we can deny him by our silence. When, When God's holiness or honor is being minimized or mocked, Or when we have opportunity, when somebody has questions about life, about this world, about about its fallenness, and we sit by silently, we deny our Lord. We deny Jesus when when we reject his teaching. Instead of faithfully witnessing to to what God has said in his word, we we take it and we, we try to force it to keep step with culture, the spirit of our age. In doing so, we deny our Lord. We deny Jesus by, by our hypocrisy, by, by asserting our commitment to Jesus. Oh yeah, I'm his follower. But then we repudiate him with our, our sexual liberty, with our greed, with our materialism, with our drunkenness, with our pride. old, old pastor by the name of John Broadus said this. He said, in fact, a Christian is always and everywhere either confessing Christ or denying him. Every wrong act performed, every duty disregarded or imperfectly discharged, every indication of character not conformed to his will and likened to his image is, by the very necessity of the case, a denial of our Lord. And Savior. You see, discipleship goes beyond a proper private confession about Jesus, publicly witnessing to and identifying with Christ, regardless of the pressures with which we are faced. But here's what I want you to hear hear it clearly our hope is not in the resolve 
of our discipleship. Your hope is not in the resolve of your discipleship or the integrity of your confession. That shouldn't be your hope because if that's your hope, all hope is gone. Our hope is this. Peter was not cast away, forever rejected by Jesus. Peter went on to be restored by Jesus, to lead the early church, to write letters to encourage and strengthen a church under persecution. How ironic is that? Because he was forgiven by the one who came to give his life as a ransom payment for faithless people. Your hope, my hope, it's not found in, in my resolve, in, in, in our tenacity under pressure, but in Jesus who came and willingly surrendered his life for those whose resolve and tenacity are inadequate. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for sending your son. And we thank you, Jesus, that you did not shrink back in fear when your life was at stake. But you defiantly and boldly and willingly surrendered your life by testifying to your identity. May our hope be in you, our suffering servant, you who gave your life as a substitute for us, helpless rebel sinners. And I pray that uh, you would, by your spirit, cause us to walk in your footsteps not counting the cost, but identifying with you. May our lips not be silent when you give us the opportunity to speak. May we not shrink back in fear at culture when it defies your word. May we testify of your greatness, of your glory, of your holiness at all times. May our life be, may our Christianity be more than just a confession made in private, but something lived out at school, at work, at the gym, in our neighborhoods. And even when we fail, this week if we fail, may we turn with consolation and see that our hope is in you. May your spirit encourage us to get up and walk after you again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.